Heavenly Father, quiet our hearts in your presence and open your word to change us. Give us truth that will enlighten our eyes, set our hearts free, that will fill our hearts with joy, and may we experience hope as we believe. Speak to every heart today for Jesus' sake. And all God's people said, amen. We often quote Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Have you ever quoted that over the day? And sometimes we quote it just for any day, and truly it can be used for every day. Because God has made every day. And every day we need to be filled with rejoicing because it's a great opportunity to serve the Lord. Sometimes we take that particular verse and use it for special days. For instance, Nancy and I have engraved on the inside of our wedding ring Psalm 118, verse 23. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And the next verse, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And when we were married, that became kind of our theme verse as we came together. And that's okay. Use it for every day. Use it for special days. Some people like to use it for every Sunday. This is the day, the Lord's day, that he has set aside to be his own. Let us rejoice in it and be glad. And that's appropriate. But did you know that this verse is intended for one specific day? And that day is, take a guess, Palm Sunday. You say, how do you get Palm Sunday out of that? I'm glad you asked. Let's go to Psalm 118. Turn to Psalm 118. We've been doing a study in the Psalms to see images of God from the book of Psalms, and today the image is a king, a humble king. Psalm 118. We don't know the author of this particular psalm, and there is no historic setting given to us. But when you read the psalm and study it, most scholars believe that it's the writing of a king or some great ruler. It could be David. We don't know. Some think it's Moses because verse 14 is a direct quote from Exodus chapter 15 where the song of Moses is given. Exodus 15 in verse 2. So they say this is Moses the ruler as he talks about leading a nation. So it's a king or a great ruler leading a nation. And the king got in trouble. And the Lord delivered him. The first part of the psalm is intensely personal. Look at verse 1. And by the way, there's a lot of repetition. Verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. And that's repeated four times. Let Israel say his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his love endures forever. Why such repetition? Because the psalmist is so passionate. He says in verse 5, in my anguish I cried to the Lord. I was in trouble, but he answered me by setting me free. Verse 6, the Lord is with me, I won't be afraid. Verse 7, the Lord is with me, he's my helper. 
Verse 8, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Verse 9, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Notice how he just repeats over and over. And then three times from verse 10 through verse 13, he says, the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side, verse 11. The name of the Lord I cut them off. Verse 12, like bees they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. Verse 14, the Lord is my strength and song. He's become my salvation. This great deliverance caused the psalmist to create this song. Verse 15, the Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. Verse 16, the Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die. I'm going to be chastened, verse 18, or I have been chastened severely, but he's not given me over to death. That could be Moses. That could be David. Both chastened for their sin, but not killed. Used to deliver God's people. So, verse 19, open for me the gates of righteousness, probably referring to Jerusalem, and I'll enter in and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous enter. Let me come into the city. Let me offer a sacrifice at the temple. Let me give thanks, verse 21, for you have answered me and you have become my salvation. So the first half is intensely personal. The second section, beginning with verse 22, is prophetic. Now, in the prophetic portions of the Psalms, Often the writer is talking about something he's experienced, but what he writes is going to be ultimately fulfilled in the greater type who's coming, the greater fulfillment of his life. So if a king is writing this, prophetically he's writing of a greater king who's going to come. Look at verse 22, and it gets very familiar now. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. That is repeated in all the Gospels, and it refers to Jesus Christ. Verse 23, the Lord has done this, what? Exalted Jesus to the highest place, established him as the stone, the foundation stone. The Lord's done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This day where he has established the stone for Israel as the chief cornerstone. Verse 25, O Lord, save us. By the way, you know what that is in Hebrew? Hosanna. Ever heard that before? <laughs> Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. Verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 27, the Lord is God. He's made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Join in the parade. Wave the branches, the psalmist says. You are my God and I will give you thanks. You are my God and I will exalt you. And then he ends as he began. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. So as we come to this prophetic section, we see that this is all about Palm Sunday. Let me prove it to you. Turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. And let's look at the reception 
that King Jesus gets on the triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Just by way of history, I would suggest that the church honor and recognize two other special days in our calendar. We have Palm Sunday and we have Resurrection Sunday all this week. But prior to that, I would say we ought to inaugurate a Declaration Sunday. Jesus was with his disciples in the very northern part of Israel at a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's where Old Testament Dan is. And he asked Peter the question, all the disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter answered, what? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was declared clearly that he indeed is God incarnate, Son of God and Son of Man. Peter got it right. And Jesus said, you got it right because God revealed that to you. And then Jesus said this, Guys, I need to go to Jerusalem, which was about as, they were about as far, far away from Jerusalem as they could be and still be in Israel. I've got to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of wicked people. The religious leaders are going to have me crucified. I'm going to be buried, but the third day I'll rise from the dead. And from that point on, Jesus began his march to the south all the way to the southern area of Judea, to the city of Jerusalem. Right after Declaration Sunday, we could also inaugurate Transformation Sunday, Transfiguration Sunday. Because Jesus in Matthew 17 goes to Mount Hermon, most likely the highest mountain, right by Caesarea Philippi, and he is transformed before them, transfigured. The divinity of Christ shines through the humanity of Christ and they see him like they've never seen him before. And then they march on to Jerusalem. Jesus is teaching on the way, performing miracles. And he comes all the way down to Jericho. Now Jericho is east of Jerusalem. It's about 17 miles away. It's 800 feet below sea level in Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. It's all up. But you would come to Jerusalem. It's kind of like an oasis or a Jericho before you would go to the city of Jerusalem. And there, the Bible tells us, look at Matthew 20, verse 29, a great crowd was following him from the Galilee. They went, came with him all the way down to the south. And then Jesus works his way up the incline to the city of Jerusalem. And when we come to chapter 21, we read in verse 8, a large crowd was following him. The king is going to be received into the city by this vast, unbelievable multitude. Why so many people? Well, let me give you several reasons. Number one, it was Passover. And all Jews were required, according to Exodus 21, all males were required to go to this festival of all festivals. And so the city would just be inflated with unbelievable uh, attendance. In fact, William Barclay, the historian, said there was probably 2.5 million people in the city of Jerusalem during Passover. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says 3 million. People were everywhere. Now, when you get a crowd of people like that, you also have to bring in added security, right? 
We do that. If, whenever there's a Boston Marathon being run, you better believe today there's added security. And so that happened in that day. So an extra contingent of soldiers came from Caesarea on the sea, traveled about 45 miles, and the soldiers came in to make sure that they kept the peace. And Fort Antonio that was connected to the temple compound inflated with soldiers. And there was one ruler that came from Caesarea. It was his hometown. I mean, that's where he was stationed as the Roman governor. That's where his home was. He didn't want to come to Jerusalem, but he had to because of the Passover. So he said, okay, I'll do my two weeks and then I'm coming back home. Little did he realize his life would be transformed, radically changed in those few days because this guy's name was Pilate and he was going to be drawn into a controversy he couldn't get out of. The city had filled with people who came from Passover with extra soldiers coming in, and the place was tense. See, there were many Jews, zealots, who were trying to overthrow the Roman government. In fact, they had caught one guy and threw him in prison. His name was Bar-Abba. Bar means son of, Abba means father, son of the father. We know him as Barabbas. And he was in prison and Rome was ready to throw anyone else in prison. And now this Jesus is calling himself king? Added to the crowd were people who had just witnessed some amazing miracles. It wasn't too long before this that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. In fact, he was from the little town of Bethany on the east side of the Mount of Olives. And we read in the gospel accounts that people who witnessed that miracle were there on Palm Sunday. And in Jericho, when Jesus was passing through and a large crowd was with him, he healed a blind man named Bartimaeus. And I think more people joined the crowd and traveled with him all the way up to Jerusalem. I mean, the place was packed. And Jesus is going to do something that is so unlike him. Think about it. Before, when Jesus healed someone, he would often say, don't tell anybody, right? Keep it to yourself. And when he performed some miracle feeding a bunch of people and they wanted to make him king, he took off. When his disciples said, listen, everyone's looking for you, Jesus said in Mark 1, let's go somewhere else. It's like he was on the lamb. He was running. He didn't want people to know what was going on. Now everything is different. This is the first time in the ministry of Jesus Christ where he says, let's make a big deal of this one. I want everyone to know. You say, where do you get that from? Well, look at verse 1 of Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, a small village on the east side of the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, which was Bethany. And at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Now, remember, they haven't even gotten there yet. And Jesus is telling them what they're going to find. Untie them, the mother, with her foal, and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you tell him this. The Lord needs them. And he'll send them with you right away. You see, this was all planned. 
I think Jesus said to some of his friends, listen, I'm going to be coming back to Jerusalem. This is really important. Could you get your donkey and, and the foal and tie them up? Could, could I use them to go into Jerusalem? The guy says, sure. How do I know it's you? Well, I'll send my disciples, and here's the code word. The master needs them. And when you hear that, give them the animals. And that's exactly what happened. It was all planned. Jesus said, I want to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Why? Well, it says in verse 4, this took place, the planning, the strategy, the riding on the donkey, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah. Chapter 9, verse 9. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is fulfilling the messianic prophecy intentionally and making a big deal of it. That's pretty amazing. I'm the king. I'm presenting myself to my people. I'm going to fulfill the messianic prophecy of Zechariah. And by the way, we think of the donkey as kind of a lowly beast. We despise donkeys. I mean, it's... You know, that's humbling to be on a donkey. But it wasn't so in the east. It's true in the west, but not in the east. In the monarchy of the Jews, when a king would ascend to power, he would often ride on a donkey. You can read about that in 1 Kings. If a king wanted to come for war, he'd be on a war horse. If he's coming for peace, he rides on a donkey. And that's exactly what Jesus is coming for. He's presenting himself as the king of peace. Gentle. Riding on a donkey. By the way, he's on the colt that has never been ridden before. Other gospel writers tell us. That's significant. You see, when the red heifer was sacrificed in the Old Testament, it was one who had never pulled in a yoke. When the ox would take the cart that held the Ark of the Covenant, it was ox who never pulled a cart before. And now when Messiah is coming into the city, it's on a donkey that has never been ridden before. But isn't it a little risky to ride a colt that's not broken? Not if you're the king of the world. It shows his complete control over all the situation. So he gets on the donkey, fulfills Zechariah, and begins to ride into the city. Verse 8, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches, palm fronds from the trees and spread them on the road. I think I've shared this before, but the very first time I ever went to, to Israel, one of the most surprising things to me when I got off the plane, got out of the airport in Tel Aviv, was to see all the palm trees. I wasn't expecting that. I thought, this is like the Bahamas. The weather was beautiful and palm trees everywhere. And then I thought to myself, well, duh, Palm Sunday. I never thought of that, never put two and two together. But they're everywhere. And so they cut the palm frond down. But why did they do that? 150 years before, when Simon and Judas Maccabees helped lead a revolt against the Greeks that established freedom for the Jewish people, they went riding into the city of Jerusalem and people waved palm fronds. It became the symbol of Jewish freedom and still is today. Look at their coins and you'll see the palm frond is there. It's not for Jesus. 
It's for Judas Maccabees. But now Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy, or at least the, the prototype. He's coming in as the king, the deliverer. And people are excited. Here is the king. Come to conquer the Romans. And the Bible tells us that they went ahead of him and they went behind him. Verse 9. Crowds ahead and crowds behind shouting what? Hosanna. Where do we get that? Psalm 118. Lord, save us. Lord, save us. Hosanna to the son of David. And if you go to the other gospel writers, you can add in thoughts like this. Hosanna, the coming king, kingdom of David. Hosanna, Israel, here comes your king. And then they said this, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a direct quotation from Psalm 118, verse 26. And Jesus fulfills now the psalm. Verse 10 says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. Man, there was a buzz that was palatable. Who is this guy? Did you see what just happened? Look at the crowd out there in the Kidron Valley. I cannot believe what this humble king, he, is he the king? Who is he? And the answer, verse 11, and if you would look at the original, it reads like this. This is the prophet. Jesus from Nazareth of the Galilee. I think this is a quotation from Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says, there is coming the prophet. He's the one you need to listen to. He's the one you need to follow. And so Jesus, in the space of a few verses, is fulfilling the prophet Zechariah about the coming Messiah on a donkey. The prophecy in Psalm 118 about coming in the festive procession into the city with the palm fronds, bows in hand. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. All of that fulfills Psalm 118. And he also fulfills Deuteronomy 18. This is the prophet. He's Jesus from the Galilee. And they receive their king in pretty amazing fashion. Wouldn't have that been exciting to be there? You can go to Israel, and today there will be a march down the Mount of Olives, and it will be so crowded it'll be hard to get through. And some will be riding on donkeys just to commemorate this coming of the king into a city. But there was something a little disturbing about Psalm 118. Did you catch it? It talked about the rejection of the king in verse 22. The stone that the builders, what was it? Rejected. He's being received here and welcomed gladly and the people are calling him king and God and the prophet and Messiah and all of these things. But Jesus is going to cleanse the temple. And during Holy Week, share some parables and sermons that really upset the leaders. And the ones who are already jealous of him now have plotted to kill him. 
So later on in Holy Week, this is Matthew 21. Look at verse 42. Jesus says to them, have you guys never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, the capstone. This is what God has done, and it's marvelous in our eyes. You guys are rejecting me, Jesus says, but what you're doing is you're rejecting the cornerstone, the one that God has ordained to be the foundation stone of all Israel and the salvation of all mankind. And Jesus quotes from Psalm 118. That's why this is the day the Lord has made has to refer primarily to Palm Sunday. Later on, the religious leaders are going to arrest Jesus in the garden because Judas gives him up. They'll take him to the house of Caiaphas and try him there, take him to Pilate's court. Pilate wasn't counting on this, and he doesn't see him as being guilty, so he tries to get him off, and he says to the Jewish people, Behold your king, and they say, We have no king but Caesar. (laughs) These are the people who are crying, Lord, save us. Deliver us from Rome. And now they say, we have no king but Caesar. And then they made this statement, we will not have this man rule over us. And the issue of Palm Sunday is this, who is your king? That's the issue. Who's your king? Some people want to receive Jesus as Savior. Oh, Hosanna, save us now, deliver us, forgive our sins. We want that part, but no, we don't want you ruling over us. And you cannot divide Jesus between Lord and Savior. He is Lord and Savior, and you receive him for who he is. And one of the clear evidences that you are born again, that you've been forgiven of your sin, is that you obey him as your king. Now, we don't do it perfectly, but we should do it wholeheartedly and sincerely. Who's your king? We'll not have Jesus to rule over us. I'd rather have wealth be my God. Let wealth be my king. Fame will drive me and motivate me. I live for sex. I live for drugs. Let these things control me. That's my king. We have no king but Caesar. Some of you today cannot say, Jesus is my savior and Jesus is my king. Only Luke tells us this. When Jesus was coming down the Mount of Olives, And people were in front and people behind and the multitudes, the vast multitudes crying out, Hosanna. In the middle of that parade, Jesus stops and begins to weep. Luke 19 tells us as they came closer to Jerusalem, Jesus saw the city and he began to sob. Luke 19, verse 41. Eternal peace was within your grasp. And you turned it down, he said. And now it is too late. How many times would I have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Now your house is left to you desolate. 
Your enemies are going to pile up earth against your walls, and they're going to encircle your city. They'll crush you to, your, to the ground and your children within your city walls. Your enemies will not leave one stone on another. And in 70 AD, the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem. And if you visit Jerusalem today, you'll go on the, on the uh, western side, the western wall, right by the Wailing Wall and the southern wall, and the stones are still in piles today from 70 AD as a silent witness to the veracity of God's word. I like the way it's translated in the New English Bible. Verse 44 says, you have rejected, you did not recognize the time of God's moment when it came. You rejected the opportunity God offered to you. Or maybe we could put it this way, you miss God's moment. You miss God's moment. God was there, you missed it. Instead of receiving him as king, you've rejected him. You and I know what it's like to miss an important moment, don't we? The father works too late at night and hustles to his son's concert and rushes into the middle school only to see people piling up the chairs and his son in the corner crying. He says, Dad, you missed it. The husband comes to his wife with flowers and says, Honey, I just want to thank you for marrying me and to remember our anniversary. She says, That's fine, but it was two months ago. You missed it. A student studies for his exam and pulls an all-nighter, but then the alarm doesn't go off and he sleeps through his exam, comes to the prof and says, Can I take it again? And the prof says, No, you missed it. You and I all know the pain of missing something vitally important, but nothing will match these words coming from the lips of Jesus. You missed God's moment. You say, when is God's moment? It's right now. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. This is God's moment for you. Many Israelites had their moment when Jesus came into the city and they missed it. Don't miss this moment to trust Christ as your Savior. And to those of us who name Jesus as our Savior, do we live in such a way that people know he is our Lord? Is the rule of Christ evident in your life? Do people know you follow King Jesus? Don't miss this moment. It's here. And Jesus wants you to trust him, to follow him, and if you do, you will receive life more abundant than you have ever imagined. And if you reject him, you'll miss God's moment. And as it says in verse 42, now, it is too late. Someday, it will be too late. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, both in the Old Testament and New. Thank you, Lord, how it goes together so seamlessly. 
and how Jesus fulfills the prophecies of Zechariah and the psalmist and Moses. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus is the one who fulfills all of those messianic prophecies. He is the king who has come and the king who is coming again. May we not miss this moment to close with Christ. May we not miss this moment to trust him, turning from all our other trusts, turning from our sin, all other gods we worship, rejecting them all that we might receive and embrace Jesus alone. And may the rule of Christ, the gracious, gentle, righteous rule of Christ be apparent in our lives on this Palm Sunday. In the name of the King we pray, amen.